So we're going to start um, our our this series in Christology, and I, I want to consider how Christ and what He has done for us um, relates to us from a vantage point that I think might be underlooked when we are considering Christ's life, death, and resurrection. There are many things that we say that we all agree on, that we um, affirm, that we say that Christ earns for us salvation, and we're going to talk about that this afternoon. But what does it mean for Christ to earn for us salvation? We say that on the cross, or even before that, through the life of Christ, and even before that in the Incarnation, when God became man, um, it shows the great love of God for us. Um, well, what does it mean for God to love us in Christ? Um, we say things like, Jesus Christ knew us on the cross. Well, how does He know us? Does He know us strictly as God, or does He know us also as man? And even as man, how can one man know every single person? Um, even down to considering the great sorrow of Christ. And I made a comment last time we were together in the morning when I preached on the tears of Christ, and that is the tears of Christ save us. And that you know, that got kind of some some um, conversations of um, flaring up. Well, how does Christ's sorrow save us? Um, there's much to the sorrow of Christ that that earns for us, merits for us salvation that I'm sure many have never considered before. And also we'll consider the love of Christ and how essentially what God desires most out of a sacrifice is not nearly it's not merely just a body, but it's but it's the love. It's love. Um, we'll consider those things, but this afternoon we'll, we're going to consider this question and that is the necess- or rather the statement the necessity of Christ's merits ontologically. Ontologically, okay? Thomas Aquinas says, O loving pelican, O Jesus Lord, unclean I am, but cleanse me in thy blood, of which a single drop for sinners spilt can purge the entire world from all its guilt. Okay? Um, when we consider what Christ has done for us, we have to ask this one question. How can one person do for I should say, the whole human race that we can't do for another person. We can't merit for another person. Then how in the world is Christ able to merit for a multitude of people? We don't even do this in the legal system. So how can Jesus Christ, what makes Jesus Christ then fitted? What makes Him the one that is able to earn your, your, all of your salvation? What, well, how do, that doesn't make any. How do we make sense of that? The summary of this afternoon's message is simply this: Christ is able to merit for the human race by virtue, or by uh, by virtue of the worth and efficacy of his person, and not checking off boxes. Again, Christ is able to merit for the human race by virtue of the worth of his person and not by checking boxes. What do I mean by that? Some today would deny the ontological basis, and when I say ontological, what I mean is the who, the who-ness of you are, of us, of Christ's merits. And instead, we want to see them as covenantally defined. In other words, some would say 
the reason why Jesus Christ is able to earn, merit your salvation is founded on him completing stipulations of a covenant and not the infinite worth of his person and actions. There are two ways the Reformed have come at this. Okay, So again, some will say that the reason why Jesus Christ can merit salvation for the whole human race is because he checked off certain boxes. He did, he did things based upon a covenant that was made. There's two ways to come at this. First, they will say that Christ was able to merit for his people because he fulfilled the same covenant of works that was given to Adam in the garden. Again, Christ was able to merit for the whole human race because he was able to pick up the slack of Adam. He was able to do what Adam failed to do. Of course, he does, he does do what Adam failed to do. But there are many that say that the self-same covenant that was given to Adam in the garden was the self-same covenant that was given to Christ. Um, or you have theologians that say that Christ was able to merit for his people because he fulfilled a covenant that was established in eternity between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Let's consider the first way. That is, Christ is able to merit for his people because he fulfilled the same covenant of works that was given to Adam in the garden. Now, what is the covenant of works? Many of you already know this, so just some review. Uh, the covenant of works is a covenant that God imposed upon Adam in the Garden of Eden. So Adam is created and then God imposes a covenant with him. And the, the covenant went essentially like this. If you do this, you will receive eternal life. If you don't do this, if you fail, you will receive eternal death. That's essentially what the covenant says. If you do this, you receive this reward of eternal life. And if you don't do it, which he didn't do it, you receive death. So, what was Adam to do to earn eternal life? How was Adam to merit eternal life? And I'm very tempted to go to Adam and merit, but we're going to stick to Christ and merit. How was Adam able to merit eternal life? Well, essentially, Adam was to merit eternal life, earn the reward of eternal life, by simply obeying God. Obeying God. His task was to obey, amongst, you know, tend the garden, but the very base, the very core of what Adam was to do was to obey God. So some theologians will make a connection between what Adam was to do, the way he was able to eternal, uh, uh, eternal life for us, and what Christ was to do to earn eternal life for us. Since Adam was to obey God, Christ was to obey God. And if Christ obey God, obeys God, he gets, or, and for us as well, eternal life. To these theologians, Jesus Christ takes on the covenant that Adam failed to obey. And by reason of his perfect obedience to that covenant, he's able to merit eternal life. Um, once one, one advocate of this, his name is Lee Irons, he says, There is one point at which asymmetry must not be introduced, namely at the point of merit. So there, there, can't, be a, a, there can't be a disconnect. There has to be a connection. Okay, asymmetry means disconnect. There can't be a disconnect between Adam and Christ. Introducing asymmetry between the merit of the two Adam is problematic because it undermines the concept that salvation of the elect is founded upon the satisfaction of the justice of God. The justice of God is not bypassed by satisfied uh, in salvation, but satisfied in salvation because the merit of Christ as the second Adam is accepted by God as a substitute on the behalf of the elect for the merit of that first Adam 
should have not failed to achieve. But in the, the merit that this first Adam should have achieved was only an improper merit based on God's gracious, uh, gracious voluntary condescension, then there is no necessity for the satisfaction of justice by the merit of the second Adam. There is then a tension between these two things, between ontology, that is the value of a thing, and satisfaction, um, between using ontology rather than covenant to measure strict merit. So what he's saying is, the way we... But the way we understand strict merit, how one can merit, is simply by a covenant and not by the intrinsic value of the, of the one who's performing the act. It's going to make sense in a little bit, saints. We must not ground, what he's saying is we must not ground Christ's merits because of the ontological value of Christ's merits. But we must ground Christ's merits based off a covenant because there is, and the reason why is because there's no ontological value in Adam's merits in the garden. So therefore, there's no ontological value of Christ's merits. Okay? The other way theologians ground Christ's merits is a covenant that was made in eternity. And this is known as the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Many of you, again, already know what this is. But to refresh your memory, the covenant of redemption is simply the agreement between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an agreement in eternity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father gives to the Son a mission and a work to accomplish. If the Son completes this mission, He will be rewarded. Now mind you, from to be charitable, many people who advocate a covenant redemption say that this is not actually what really happened. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's an it's analogy, okay? Um, now, in a covenant, in the covenant of redemption, theologians say that the Father gave a work to the Son to do. He gave the Son certain commitments, okay? And those commitments were simply this. The Son must be a federal head for a specific people, but means He must represent others. The Son must become incarnate. God must take on flesh. He must be born under the law and live perfectly to the law of God. And then He must suffer and bear the sins of His people. If you do these things, son, then you will receive a reward. What's the reward? Eternal life. For you and for all of your posterity. Okay? If he does them perfectly, then he will receive a reward. What's the problem with these two views? With respect to Christ and merit? What's the problem? Well, the problem is if we ground Christ's merits in fulfilling a covenant and, quote, check boxes then we are undermining the very reason, reason for the Incarnation itself. Again, if we ground the basis of Christ's marriage, the reason why Christ can marry not only for me, but for you and for the entire human race, if we ground that in Him fulfilling a covenant, then we are undermining the reasoning for why God became man. That is to say, the reason why we needed God to become man and to earn for a salvation was because only one who was truly God could earn for a salvation. Again, only one who was truly God. We can even say this. Only one who is of infinite value could obtain for us justification not for a year, but for all eternity. We don't need one to fulfill a covenant per se, which... But we need one who is infinite. That's the basis of Christ's merits for us. Remember, saints, we are at an infinite debt to God. We needed one who was of infinite value. 
And that line of thought runs through all of Christ's saving works for us. All of what Christ does for us is of infinite value. All of what He does is of infinite value. Think of Christ's obedience, saints. Our Lord's perfect obedience unto God is of infinite value because His obedience is the obedience not of a mere man like Adam, but of a divine person, the Son of God. And by reason of this, saints, His obedience, His obedience is of greater glory, worth, and dignity because the one who's obeying is not, is not yes, he's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, but he's not merely a man. He's God in the flesh. And just by the simple fact that he is God in the flesh, whatever he does in his humanity is of infinite value. Think of Christ's death. What makes his sacrifice for sin more than enough? And that's interesting, is it not? Think of Think of a multitude of people, right, that are saved and that one day will be in heaven with us, right? I mean, we, we can probably spend, we will spend an infinite amount of, of days in heaven and we probably won't even get to meet everyone. <laughs> How much people there's going to be. How can one person merit for as many sands that are on the seashore, as many stars that are in heaven? How can one person do that? Because the one that's offering a sacrifice is of infinite value. That's why. Okay? Uh, Pope Clement VI said, The merits of Christ are infinite. That a single drop of his blood, because of the personal union with the world, would have, uh, would have um, so, uh, paid for the redemption of the whole human race. Uh, this, is what, this is what theologians have said throughout History is that it's just one drop, even from, even when Christ as a baby was getting circumcised, was enough to pay for the sins of a whole human race. Now, that's not to undermine Christ dying, right? But what it is to say, though, it is to uphold, right, and uplift the value of this one, that he's not just a normal individual. And this should also highlight the the mystery of the Incarnation, but also how we value our salvation, right? How we value our... And this is all, this is all what I'm trying to, to get home to you, is your salvation and the value of your salvation um, is of infinite value. Is of infinite value. Okay, let's consider Christ and the infinite value of His person. Christ and the infinite value of His person. Um... Let me say that all I'm going to say right now, I do not comprehend all of it. I do not wrap my mind and, and I don't attempt to wrap my mind around the mystery of who Christ is. It is an infallible and um, in, in, um, in beyond mysterious thing to even to even try to to say I have fully grasped it. But here's a summary of what I'm going to say. The reason why Christ is able to merit for the whole human race and the reason why his life, death, and resurrection is of, um, of eternal value and eternally efficacious is because the one who performs those actions is the eternal Son of God. Again, the one 
The reason why Christ is able to merit for the whole human race is because the one who performs, performs the actions, big there, that's big to remember, the one who's performing the actions of living, dying, and rising for us is the eternal Son of God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the eternal Son assumes human nature... We have to think that, and many think that, well, in order for God to become man, he must stop being God. He must turn off, you know, whatever all of it means to be God in order for him to truly and properly be man. Because two beings that are of opposite ends of the spectrum cannot be in a unified whole. Okay? Well, how do we get around that? Well, simply put, God can do anything. Okay? That's a, suffi- that's a sufficient answer. God can do anything. If God can create the world out of nothing, then I'm sure God can become man without stop being God. So remember, saints, when, when the eternal Son, when He assumes human flesh, when He becomes like you and I, He never stops being God. He never stops being God. We read in John 1.14 that the Word, the eternal Son, took on a true human nature. In other words, He took on all of what it means to be man. Every single thing. Okay? Jesus Christ is really and truly God, while also really and truly being man. Now you might say, is there an analogy that we can use? You can, but at the same time, it's going to fail. Like you can't say, well, is he like, um, is he like a, a like a, like a half, no, like a cat dog? <laughs> I used to watch this as a kid, right? Does he have like, you know, or, or is he like a like a horse and like a like a lion in one? You know, um, no, he's not. There, there is this is an, an utterly unique event in time and history that will never be repeated. That cannot be repeated. So I can't give you, you know, a pithy analogy or like it's kind of like this because I don't know any, and I don't know if they properly do justice. Right? There's some analogy we can use, but I don't know of any with regard to Christ's person. But here's what we must remember, saints. Here's what we must remember. If you don't get this, um, then quite simply, you don't, you don't get your salvation in Christ. Here it is. The base of Christ's person. Who? The who-ness of Christ is the eternal Son of God. Okay? The base, the who of Christ's person is the eternal Son of God. So if I say, if, we're, if someone was walking down the street, I say, who is that? You would say what? That's a human being. Right? If we were walking the streets of Jerusalem and we said, who is that? Our mind would say that's a human being if we saw Christ, right? But he's also truly God. Okay? And because the base of Christ's person is God, then all of the actions, everything he does... From living, dying, and rising. Let's just say that. Everything he does is performed by God. Amen. So he doesn't take off his, you know, he doesn't turn off the God, his Godness, when he wants to laugh and then turns on his humanity. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I want to do this in my human nature, so now I'm going to take off my divine nature and then put on the human nature. He's not, in, in Christ, he's not switching. Right? 
He's always, always doing things as the God-man. Okay? But all of the actions performed, and hear me now, all of the actions performed, whether it's Christ laughing, Christ using the restroom, Christ crying, Christ eating, although He's doing them as man, we attribute them to God. We attribute them to God. Now, how is that possible? The reason why, saints, is because persons act. Persons do things. Natures don't do things. You know this. When you're walking down the street and you say, you don't say, well, man, that's a nice-looking human nature. Right? Um, in in um, Dinah's room right now, we don't say, man, I hope that human nature comes out very human naturist. No, 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 no. We say that that's a person in Dinah's womb. When one's walking, we say, look at that person. Because the person is the one that's doing the action of walking. A person is in Dinah's womb. Right? Um, um, sister, uh, um, uh, um, or actually, Brother Antonio, uh, Pastor Antonio is holding a person, not just a, hum- not just a human nature. Right? So persons then are the ones that perform actions. Now, what allows a person to perform an action? What dictates that? Their nature. Why can't you fly? Because you don't have a nature that allows you, that, that, that will enable you to fly. If you have the nature of a bird, you could fly. But you don't have a nature of a bird. And the reason why a bird can't do what we do is because they don't have a human nature. But it doesn't mean that they don't have a. It doesn't mean that you know it's not a subsistent being or a person, right? Persons act. Persons do things, not our natures. Uh, WGT said says when the logos, the eternal son, goes into union with the human nature, so as to constitute a single person with it. So what you have is in in Christ, you don't have a human person and a divine person. You got a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature. Hear this. He, that is, the, that is the eternal Son, becomes responsible for all that his person does. This is why Christ as man couldn't sin, was unable to sin. Because if Christ as man sinned, then you have to say ultimately God sinned. Right? Because God, right, the eternal Son... He is the one that's responsible for all of the actions of Christ, even as man. Even as man. This is what Scripture presents to us. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here it is. To shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Now, that's very interesting, right? To shepherd the church of God, and then it says, which He, God, purchased with His own blood. Does God bleed? Yes and no. Yes and no. God, as God, doesn't bleed. But God has assumed a nature that now allows Him to bleed. And he's and now when he bleeds, even as man, right? 
even as men, we don't say, well, his human nature is bleeding. No, we say God is bleeding. And what's enabling him to bleed is his humanity. Just as if you've got a nature of a bird, what would enable you to fly is your nature. Whatever the nature of bird is, right? So it is God then, Peter tells us. It is God who died for us. Not that God as God died. God as man died. Right? But the very one though, that doesn't, that doesn't undermine, the very one that was on the cross was God. I know, this, this is a mystery. A very, very vast mystery. Let me give you another one. First Corinthians 2.8 the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they under, had understood it, and hear it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. They would have not crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, this, the one that was on Golgotha's hill, going up Golgotha's hill, carrying the cross, the one that was, that was placed upon that cross, upon that sacrificial altar, are we saying that that one was God? Yes, we're saying that. Are we saying that, and can we say that one of the members of the Trinity died? Yes, we can say that. And we should say that. Because it was God who died for us. Now, of course, we got to make the caveat of, well, he only dies according to a nature that allows him to die. He dies as man. That's fine. But we don't. But we don't. But what, we, what we don't want to do is we don't. We don't want to up, uphold right that he does things according to this nature while also belittling that the one who's doing them and performing the actions is God of God. Is God of God? <clears throat> Richard Moeller says the source of the merit of Christ is the person of Christ, who performs the work of satisfaction. Since the person is a divine word, the second the infinite second person of the Trinity, the work performed by that person, even though accomplished through his, uh, his humanity, must be infinite. In other words, saints, the actions performed by Christ, even if, it's, even if God dies as man, even his humanity is of infinite value because his humanity is the very humanity of God. It is God's humanity. <clears throat> because Christ's humanity is the humanity of God. God is the possessor. He's the owner of that humanity. It's His humanity. Okay? And whatever happens in His humanity is of infinite worth. Infinite worth. Okay, let's consider now the question. The question of all questions. How Jesus Christ can merit for a multitude of people? How can He merit for a multitude of people? Okay? What is merit? What is merit? There's various ways to come at merit. Uh, let me tell you that merit doesn't mean the same thing. Okay? It doesn't mean the same thing when we get into the weeds of it. Okay? There is condign merit, there's congruent merit, and there's strict merit. We're going to stick to just strict merit. Okay? There are various ways to consider merit. Generally, though, when we consider strict merit, it's understood as an act by which one acquires a right to a reward do injustice. When one acquires, or as an, as an act by which one acquires a, a right to a reward due to injustice. In other words, justice demands certain uh, a certain equality of dignity between the act and the reward. Now, this doesn't mean that if one works for eight hours and he's getting paid a dollar an hour, 
that it's out of justice that at the end he gets $80. Okay? But rather, it's who's performing the act. Who's performing the act. So, for instance, um, let's just say, let's just do two people. Okay, you have Jimi Hendrix, and you have, like, let's just say I was a singer. We both are booked for a concert. Okay? I don't sing. Jimi Hendrix, right? Legend or whatever. Will I get the same amount of money as Jimi Hendrix? No. Why? Because I'm of lesser value than Jimi Hendrix with regard to music. I know with regard to this whole scope of things, whatever. With regard to music, though, I cannot do what Jimi Hendrix does. And so, you know, the people putting on the show, they're not going to give me the same amount of money. Even if, even if I perform the same amount of time he does. Even if I perform five hours and he performs five hours, right? The reason why is because of the who. Who's performing? Who's doing the act? Well, it's little old me compared to, you know, the great value of the other person. You get what I'm saying? So, so justice would demand, right, that based upon what Jimi Hendrix does and performs, he would receive a greater reward than what I would perform. Justice would demand that because of who he is, right? Now, with regard to our salvation, man, strictly speaking, strictly speaking, cannot merit for the whole human race. Again, we'll hold off Adam, okay? Because how can Adam merit for the whole human race? Which is another question. We'll leave him to the side. We'll stick with just Christ, Man, strictly speaking, cannot merit for the whole human race. And the reason why, and hear, and hear this, the reason why no man can merit for the entire human race is because any single individual is of lesser worth than the whole of humanity, of human nature. Again, the reason why no mere man can merit for the entire human race is because one single individual is of lesser value than of human nature. How many people have a human nature in this world? I don't know. Trillion, maybe? Something like that, right? Well, that human nature than itself is of way more worth than one single person. Than one single person. In other words, saints, you yourself, you, no disrespect, but you, you cannot merit for another because your value is strictly isolated to you. Again, your value does not go beyond you. But your value is strictly to you. So if you were to do something, right? Let's say you were to earn something and say, I'm earning for another person. They're going to say, no, 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 no. Your value does not extend to others. You earn strictly for yourself. You earn strictly for yourself. Okay? Our merit doesn't go beyond us. And this truth becomes more evident when we consider eternal life. Right? Eternal life. Remember, when one comes to strict merit, the reward must be equal. The reward must be equal to the, not only work that's performed, but the who. Who's performing it? Who's performing it? But man can't merit, merit eternal life. Man can't merit the beatific vision. Man can't merit union with God. 
Because the reward of eternal life is beyond who we are. We're finite. How can we earn and merit something infinite? This is the grab, this is, this is the predicament that Adam put us in. That we ourselves, who are limited to the here and now, can only merit for the here and now. We only merit, guys. We only earn the next day and the next day. We cannot merit or earn eternal life. Okay? We can't merit eternal life because the eternal, because the reward of eternal life is beyond who we are. We're not eternal. We're not of infinite value. Therefore, we can't merit an infinite reward. Simple as that. Our actions do not carry eternal weight. What we do does not carry eternal weight. It's like trying to pay a million dollar debt with a string of yarn. Is there any value of a string of yarn compared to a, a debt of a million dollars? Of course not. What can a string of yarn do? Our limited finite soul is not worthy of such a great reward. Now, here we have Christ steps into the picture. Here's where our Savior does for us what we could not do. We cannot merit, earn an eternal reward because of who we are. Well, there is someone who can. This is why we don't, amen, sister. This is why we don't need a mere angel. We don't need a mere one who is grace of the fullness, but rather we need God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, as an isolated individual, one person does what you, one person, cannot do. Christ, as an isolated individual, one person merits for the mass of humanity. That's, that's beyond how we conceive of merit, strictly speaking. Man can't do this. God, as man, does this. One person merits for a mass of humanity. Now, what's the reason? Because his human body and soul was the body and soul of the eternal Son of God. That is why. Because his human body and soul was the human body of soul of the, etern- of the Son, of, Son of God. Or we can say, as one theologian says, our Savior's human actions were united to a divine person and a personal union so close that we can truly say it is God, the Son, who acts, suffers, merits, and makes satisfaction in the human nature that he has taken on to save us. This union between God and humanity, and the humanity they assume, it, it, is, it is so close, so close that we can say and we should say that it is God who merits our salvation. Of course He does it as man. Of course He does it as man. And all of it comes through the instrumentality of His humanity. Okay? But it is truly God who saves us. Or as one theologian says, His human actions possess a special efficacy by which he could produce effects beyond the power of ordinary men. Now, isn't that interesting? That Christ's humanity does things that no mere man can do. Like what? He touches a leopard and they are healed. Now, when he touches a leopard, when he touches a leopard, is it God who's touching him? Or is it man? Is he being touched by the touch of God? Which we can say, but, but is he being touched as man? As man. Well, he's using his human hand to touch another human being, 
to do something, right, beyond what a human hand can do. And that is heal. So through the instrumentality, like, you know, the microphone right here is an instrument by which I'm talking to you. Through the instrumentality of his humanity, God works and saves. Again, this is the mystery of Christ, um, which we'll get to eventually because Christ's mysteries are your mysteries as well. You, you are in union with Christ. So Christ as man, right? Christ as man does things and produces effects beyond what ordinary man can do because the one whose owner, whose possessor of that humanity is God. Is God. This is why we can say that the blood of that man is of infinite value because it's not blood of a mere man. It's, it's blood of God. Um, this is what we see in Scripture. This is what we see in Scripture. John 4, 14, But whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live again. He shall live. And everyone who believes and uh, lives and believes in me shall never die again. Christ, interesting, right here, Christ is raised. But Christ is raised as a man. Body and soul. So what is it about that man's resurrection where he's able to merit our resurrection? Because the one that was rising was also truly God. He's able to merit our resurrection. Lastly, John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me has sent, uh, who has sent me has, uh, has eternal life. Again, human words. You hear human words of Christ from your human here. How are his words then efficacious? Because his words are bound up in his person. His words, if he's, when Christ says, believe in me, you have eternal life. He's not pointing to some sort of external thing of eternal life that lives out in the ether. No, it's Him. He's eternal life. So when Christ says eternal life and people hear that, He's using human language, right? To do what? For you to believe and have eternal life. <clears throat> as we come to a close, saints, this is important for us to understand as we consider Christ. Knowing, saints, that as far, as far as you think you go in your sin, as distant as you think you've become from God, remember the infinite merit of Christ. That there is nowhere you can hide. There's no sin too big. There's no place and no distance where you can go where Christ's infinite merit will not cover you. Praise be to the God. Praise be to the Lord. This is why, again, your justification is not just merely for a year or two years, but for all eternity. Because the one whom you're united to is of infinite worth and value. It will never, you will never have to appraise Christ. You will never have to put Christ you know, on the auction and, and see how much he's worth. He's of infinite value. So your salvation, saints, your salvation is of is is of is an infinite treasure. What God has given to you is an infinite treasure. This is why we can say, 
as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How can one offering do what a multitude of offerings could not do? How can Christ's blood do what bulls and goats could not do? It's still blood. Because the blood that Christ offers on that sacrificial altar on Golgotha's hill was the blood of God. Again, even if he offers it through his humanity, it's still the blood of God. And it's still of infinite worth and infinite value. Let us cling to the infinite merits of our Lord, saints, always and forever. Let's pray.